Hi friends, welcome back to the journal feed. My name is Nick Zelt, and this is the only place to get spoon-fed the latest and greatest of emergency medicine, where we try to make keeping up with the literature as easy as possible for you. So let's take a quick look ahead at all the literature that we'll be spoon-feeding this week. First off, POCUS for pyloric stenosis. Then coughs and colds aren't deadly, well, unless you try to treat them. Third, you thought calling a code stroke sounded cool? How about calling team sepsis? Fourth, you might make snappier decisions on disposition by the end of your shift. And last, the ASA releases new difficult airway guidelines. This, of course, is the audio version of the past week's summaries, which this week were brought to you by the polite Justin Mother, Dendrick Cooper, Seth Walsh-Blackmore, Aaron e. Hanna, and Clay Smith. And so I bring you the first article, titled Feasibility of Point-of-Care Ultrasound for Diagnosing Hypertrophic Pyloric Stenosis in the Emergency Department, out of the Journal of Pediatric Emergency Medicine. Alright, while it is important to know your limits, for most things that you might normally send off for a formal radiology-performed ultrasound, you know, it's tempting to at least to try for yourself first. Some things are pretty well within our reach. In the perfect world, it would be maybe it would even be possible that we could take our POCUS images, and then if you needed a second opinion, you could just call radiology, they'd have a look at your images, and then boom, you're done, quick, quick, that's it. But of course, you know, if the ultrasound's going to take 30 minutes to perform, then yeah, 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 an ultrasound tech can take care of it. Anyways, pyloric stenosis typically requires a formal ultrasound, but how does POCUS do the job for this problem? Here we have a single-center retrospective study done on infants less than 90 days old presenting with vomiting to a tertiary care hospital. There had to be concern for hypertrophic pyloric stenosis in these patients, and an ultrasound had to be done for them to qualify for the study. Now, based on the practices of this emergency department, all of the infants who presented during working hours of radiology, um, that is pretty much, you know, 9 to 5 on weekdays, then a radiology ultrasound was performed, and that was the only ultrasound done. However, if they presented outside of working hours, then a POCUS study was done by the emergency physician, and only if that study was negative or if symptoms persisted, then a radiology ultrasound was done. Now, from this, POCUS was 97% sensitive and 94% specific for hypertrophic pyloric stenosis. The length of stay and the time to disposition were also shorter in the POCUS patients. Not surprisingly, since radiology wasn't available at all if these patients were being POCUS, the time to getting a radiology ultrasound was never delayed. So honestly, this sounds pretty good, and this is a nice skill to have. So if your radiology department is closed, I'd say put the probe on the belly. In a spoonful, POCUS for hypertrophic pyloric stenosis is accurate, and at least in this center, it meshes well with also having the option to get a radiology-performed ultrasound. Next is the second article titled Pediatric Fatalities Associated with Over-the-Counter Cough and Cold Medications under the Journal of Pediatrics. One of the fabled holy grails of medicine has always been the cure to the common cold. Unfortunately, not unlike cancer, the common cold is so diverse with so many possible things causing it that odds are we're never going to find a single cure-all. The closest thing we have to curing the common cold is to treat the symptoms. And for that, we have cough and cold medicine. Now, the only thing worse than a sick man is a sick child. So many patients use cough and cold medications at home. The downside to this is that off-label use of these medications, especially in children less than 2 years old, can be dangerous and have even been implicated in cases of child maltreatment. This sounds like a problem worth quantifying. 
Now, in 2008 in the United States, the FDA sought to reduce the number of deaths related to cough and cold medications, so they actually released new guidelines and had manufacturers update all of their packaging and rewrote their labels and also moved the recommendation up to only being used on children more than four years old. We are looking at the eight-year period eight years after this new labeling. For this study, a panel of experts found 40 fatal cases of cough and cold medicine use in the pediatric cough and cold safety surveillance system. Most of them were males less than two years old, and the oral agents were given by the parents. The majority of cases were either given off-label, meaning for sedation rather than symptom relief, as accidental ingestions, or even as malicious usage. The most common ingredient was diphenhydramine. I would have to assume that the actual number of cases is going to be larger than what was found here. And it's difficult to know exactly what the parents' intentions were when giving the medication unless they outright say it and most parents aren't going to admit to drugging their babies to sleep. The best practices for these medications is to at the very least strictly follow packaging instructions and use appropriate weight-based dosing. Even better would likely be to, you know, support the use of alternatives. Remember, these are cold symptoms we're controlling here. They're a nuisance, but they're really not that bad, and they would never kill your child. So why introduce a risk? Lastly, always be on the lookout for child mistreatment. And be aware that these kinds of drugs can have the potential to be used for that. In a spoonful, cough and cold medications are sometimes used off-label for sedation and unfortunately for child maltreatment. Children under two years of age are especially at risk for death from their use. Then we have the third article titled, Improved Hospital Mortality Rates After the Implementation of Emergency Department Sepsis Teams, out of the American Journal of Emergency Medicine. So, if you've heard about sepsis, you know that early identification and treatment is what's stressed most about it. And the most recent surviving sepsis guidelines strongly recommend that hospitals introduce programs to screen and treat for septic patients. This study shows us the use of one such program and how well it performed. This is a single-center retrospective study of about 1,200 patients with the primary diagnosis of some kind of sepsis before and after the implementation of what they have as a sepsis team. To activate the sepsis team, patients had to have two or more source criteria and an at least suspected infectious source. The EMR would then identify these patients and present a checkbox to decide whether or not to activate a three-hour care bundle. If you check that box, then automatically it would bring an assigned physician or APP, a nurse, and a pharmacist to the bedside of that patient to brainstorm care and potential barriers to that care. After the implementation of the sepsis team, there was a decrease in sepsis in hospital mortality with an odds ratio of 0.44 compared to before these sepsis teams were put in place. Things were also happening faster. Patients were getting antibiotics sooner, they were getting disposition sooner, admitted sooner, and leaving the emergency department sooner. These were all significant differences in patients with sepsis, but they weren't actually significantly different in patients with severe sepsis or septic shock. Really what this sounds like to me is that with a sepsis team, we're able to put the attention towards these patients that they deserve, possibly showing that generally these patients aren't prioritized well enough, especially since care was similar with severe septic and septic shock patients before and after the bundle, Um, which you'd presume that even before this bundle was done, that the physician responsible wasn't going to stray very far from these patients because they're really sick. 
Sounds like there could be a lot to learn from this program implementation, and I hope that this center is forthcoming about how they set it up. In a spoonful, putting together a sepsis team to help with the recognition of sepsis and implementation of treatment improves mortality and many time metrics. And the fourth article, titled, Analysis of Time to Disposition Intervals During Early and Late Parts of an Emergency Department Shift, out of the American Journal of Emergency Medicine. Decision fatigue is apparently a real thing. There is some evidence to suggest that as your shift goes on, you become more fatigued to making decisions because you've already made so many. It's either that or, honestly, the caffeine's just wearing off and you don't want to have another coffee because you actually want to sleep after your shift. Regardless, things might feel harder at the end of your shift, and this could affect your behavior and even your performance. One of the most important parts of emergency department work is the disposition. So how does your time to disposition change over the course of your shift? This study evaluated nearly 50,000 patient encounters. About 60% were from the first 4 hours of a shift, and the rest were from the last 5 to 10 hours of shifts. Providers took less time to reach a disposition nearer the end of their shift, with a median difference of about 38 minutes. The authors thought that people might be speeding up towards dispositions at the end of their shift because at the beginning of your shift, you're focusing more on picking up more and more patients and building a bigger roster. And it's only later in your shift that you start panicking about the monster list that you might have to sign over, and so you start dispositioning everyone. Those weren't their words, so I'm paraphrasing. Now, this was just a single-center study, but it sounds pretty generalizable. A nice thing to know would be whether or not these were good disposition decisions or not. Um, That's what really matters. Are you still dispositioning well if you're dispositioning quicker at the end of your shift? In a spoonful, as you get later in your shift, you're faster about deciding on disposition for your patients, compared with the beginning anyways. Which brings us to the last article. 2022 American Society of Anesthesiologists Practice Guidelines for Management of the Difficult Airway out of the Journal of Anesthesiology. New guidelines, you heard it, the last update was in 2013, so let's dive in and kind of modified things for, you know, how we actually operate in the emergency department, since this was meant for anesthesiologists, really. We'll tackle this in three parts. First, looking at evaluating the difficult airway. Often we can't do this in the emergency department because it's an emergency, but when you do have the time, it's a great thing to do. First step is to take a history, ask if they've ever had general anesthesia and there was difficulty with their airway. Also, if they've had any surgeries or radiation to their head or neck, or if they snore or use a CPAP at night. Next is going to be a quick exam. Mouth opening, do they fake teeth, do they have a beard, their neck mobility, and can they bite their upper lip? After that, you can measure a bunch of stuff in the head and neck anatomy if you want to take the time, and you can do a modified malampati as well. Lastly, POCUS is the up-and-comer in this regard. You can measure the things like skin-to-hyo distance, tongue volume, and distance from the skin to the epiglottis, which have some predictive values for difficult airways. When in doubt, it's safest to assume that every airway is a difficult airway, though. Okay, once you've done that evaluation, now you're worried. How do you prepare for the worst? I'm not going to belabor this part, really. You want to optimize your environment and the patient. Have everything you need already in the room. Every department should probably have a difficult airway cart with all the tools you could possibly need all in one place. Okay, now what about actually managing the airway? Of course, call for help. Maybe this airway shouldn't even be done in the emergency department at all. Do you have time? Could this be done in the operating room just in case? 
If not, then strongly consider awake intubation. And the guidelines strongly emphasize this, this awake intubation. It's repeatedly said in the guidelines. Okay, but let's say you're going to go it alone. You should have a pre-specified plan about things to do if things don't go well. And don't be afraid to say this plan out loud so that everybody in the room knows what's going to be happening next. For example, you might say, Hi, we're going to be tackling this person's airway. I'm going to start with a video laryngoscope because it looks like it might be a difficult airway. The next step is that I will be calling for a bougie if I'm not able to pass the tube. After that, I will change out for a hyperangulated scope. If that still doesn't work, I would like the flexible scope. And if that still doesn't work and we're not able to bag this patient very well, I would be calling for a superglottic airway. And if that doesn't work, we might move to surgical airways. Have someone else pay attention to how much time has passed as you're trying these different attempts as well. If things aren't working, don't just try, try again. Find a new way and keep an eye on that saturation. Now let's assume that you got the airway. While emergency physicians aren't typically in the extubating business, you know, this should be especially true for difficult airways. Avoid it if at all possible. But if you have to, then set up the room as if you're going to do a difficult intubation before you pull that tube because you might just have to. Now, uh, the steps are a little bit complicated and has a lot of drug dosing, but on our blog, we have a step-by-step method for an awake intubation, which was altered a little bit from the MCRIT and Canadian EMS versions. Uh, you can have a look at it on our blog and go through it and memorize it for yourself so that you're ready next time you might have to do one. All right, let's do our wrap-up. First off, why wait? Put a probe in that belly. Pocus for hypertrophic pyloric stenosis in infants performs quite well and could save radiology some of their caseload. That means that they could get to your rule-out appendicitis scans a little bit faster if you needed a little bit of extra motivation. Second, careful with cough and cold medications, especially with children under 2 years old. And double especially, look out for off-label use, which might be maltreatment. Third, Sepsis team assemble! I want a really like Ron Burgundy style call to get the sepsis team ready and in the action. And I think that's fitting because a 56% reduction in sepsis mortality, whew, that's pretty good. And they get things done quicker as well. Fourth, emergency physicians are like everybody else. We rush things when we're facing a deadline. From this single center study, we seem to reach disposition decisions faster closer to the end of our shifts. And then fifth, respect the difficult airway. The ASA has new guidelines for their management. Now then you've earned them, we offer them CME credits provided through a partnership with Hippo Education. All the details for that are at our website at journalfeed.org. And links to all the articles we've summarized can also be found there, where if you haven't already, you can subscribe to our newsletter and get daily spoon feeds through your email. Our goal here at the Journal Feed is to provide better patient care through spoon feeding. And so we're trying to help you keep up with the latest research one spoonful at a time. Thank you.